Welcome to the True Tone Lounge. I'm your host, Zach Childs. Today's guest is one of the most recorded guitarists of the last 20 plus years because he has been involved in heavy soundtrack work that includes such movies as Wonder Woman 1984, The Joker, Dunkirk, Transformers, Interstellar, uh, The Lone Ranger, Man of Steel, Batman The Dark Knight Rises. Carl Ridland is an amazing guitar player with, of course, an, an amazing resume of films that he's worked on. And he has recently moved to the Nashville area where he is continuing his work uh, with, uh, among the many composers and orchestrators he works with is Hans Zimmer. And uh, through moving to Nashville, he is now an adjunct professor at Belmont University. And we're just so happy that we're gonna get to sit down in Carl's studio to uh, get some of his story and also get some really practical uh, advice. And we're gonna talk a bit about gear. Carl, so let, let's, let's, let's just start from the beginning. And let's, okay. uh, so how, how did you really get into music to begin with? Okay, that, that's kind of cool. My, my dad was a musician. So not that I was in a musical family, he was the only one. So I kind of grew up in a house that was musical within its own borders. And I just kind of figured everybody did that. And I didn't realize that other people didn't do that for a living. So my dad owned a music store. And so I grew up, you know, sweeping the parking lot and learning to repair musical instruments and stuff with him since I was a little kid. And it just kind of rubbed off. If, if, if for no other reason, then it was the best way to spend time with my dad. Because yeah. he was always working five days a week and Saturday, Friday night, Saturday, sometimes a Sunday brunch thing. You know, he had a steady gig at a country club for 18 years. So my best bet to hang out with my dad was to become a musician. And that's kind of how I started. Um, I was, uh, I started out playing clarinet, actually, when I was a little kid. I remember four years old waking up and going, you know, I'm, I'm turning four today. I better get this music thing together if I'm going to do it, you know. And so my dad gave me a little clarinet. It's actually still over there on that um, bookshelf over there. My very first little E-flat clarinet. It didn't even come with a mouthpiece. I just carried it around with me all day. I eventually really fell in love with uh, woodwinds and clarinet. I started as a clarinet player and then I moved to saxophone, picked up flute and oboe and bassoon. So I, my goal was to be a woodwind doubler kind of guy, or uh, my mom showed me a thing I'd written. One of my goals when I was 10 years old was to become the principal clarinet player with the Chicago Symphony. So I had kind of early dreams of grandeur <laughs> as a musician, but it was just one of those things where you kind of started out around it. And my mom was very musical. She wasn't a musician. She, she was a beautiful singer and had a pretty extensive record collection of, you know, like Spanish guitar and stuff like that. My dad had a big band collection of music, so I would just listen to it all day. Yeah. So what, I kind of started that way. Yeah. What did your dad play? My dad was a saxophone and clarinet player and okay. singer. And uh, like he had his own casual band. That's what we called him on the West Coast when I was came, grew up. Um, I grew up in Denver, actually. Moved to the West Coast after college. And we called them casuals or wedding bands. Um, some people in New York call them club dates, I think. Yeah. So it was that. I was the wedding singer. for You know, I was that guy. You know, did be, you sing? I did. I croaked him out. I'm not a good singer, but... I would, uh, you know, sing Johnny Be Good. And, you know, I was the guy in the band, the young kid in the band that, that could kind of croak that stuff out, so. And how did the guitar come into the picture? Guitar came into the picture um, because I couldn't play piano. I am the world's worst piano player. And why is that? Um, I can't make these two, these two things work together this way. They work together fine this way, but this way they don't. I can't make them 
do what they're supposed to do. As a matter of fact, I was invited to not come to piano lessons anymore at one point. That's impressive. <laughs> not for a lack of trying to practice, because I enjoyed practicing, but my sister was a crazy great piano player, legit classical piano player, and we had the same uh, teachers. My clarinet teacher was married to her piano teacher, their husband and wife, and I would go to my clarinet lesson and go to a piano lesson. And at one point, she just finally said to me, she goes, you know, I know you're trying real hard, but you just don't have it on the piano. So my dad said, look, you gotta learn um, something that's a courting instrument if you're gonna be a saxophone player. Plus I was starting to get into arranging things because he had a big band. I would try and do arrangements for the big band. So, you know, I didn't have a courting instrument to play and he thought that was real important. So he got me classical guitar lessons uh, from a guy named Ozzy Carlson in Denver. He was just the sweetest guy in the world, really nice human being. And then I st studied with uh, Dale Bruning who um, I believe he also taught um, uh, Bill Frizzell. As a matter of fact, I think Bill was a couple of students after me in wow. Denver, where Bill grew up. So I had a, like a jazz and a classical background coming up as a guitar player. But it came out of the fact that I needed an instrument to play that was courting. And I remember the day he gave me my first guitar, which is over there. It's an old Franciscan acoustic. I still have it. He, uh, he gave me the guitar and I remember opening it up and looking at it and going, Oh, these are half steps. I can do that. That's easy. After playing clarinet and bassoon and flute with all these weird fingerings and monophonic and stuff, I just looked at this and went, oh, it's only half steps. That, that'll be easy. Yeah. It just kind of jumped off the fretboard at me yeah. for some reason. So that's how I kind of got started was it was kind of part of the, part of the uh, tapestry of the life that you were leading as a musician. And I think that I fell in love with a guitar is what really happened. And um, in that summer between junior high and high school, uh, when I got the guitar, I was auditioning for Allstate. You know, you do your Allstate auditions. In Denver, we did them kind of beginning, almost to the beginning of the school year. You did it late summer. And I've been practicing guitar so much, I made Allstate and the McDonald's High School band on both saxophone, clarinet, flute, and guitar. Wow. So what was it about the guitar that pulled you? I, you know, I guess the E flat, you know, clarinet is kind of in the same, you know, range. Yeah. And such. Yeah. Uh, but what was it about the guitar that really pulled you in? Well, what, what was kind of interesting is interesting you said that because one of the first things I did was um, actually B flat clarinet is actually in the range. E flat is okay. the sopranino sopran okay. okay. or soprano clarinet. But the B flat one is reading wise in the exact range. The low notes are written E. Right. And then the high notes go up to, you know, G-ish and stuff like that. Yeah. So one of the first things I did was I started practicing out of my Rubank clarinet methods. That was my first book in my close clarinet method. Those were my first guitar books, in addition to the classical stuff. Yeah. But that's where I just kind of went, well, these are what's around. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go to music school. You go for, yeah. for university. Yeah. I went to uh, University of Colorado at Denver, which was kind of a weird path. Um, I had done auditions for North Texas State, you know, all the, all the ones you want to go to as a music pro guy, right. you know, Berkeley, North Texas State. And then when I went for my audition at Juilliard on clarinet, um, that was such a legit school back then. I only auditioned on clarinet there. I didn't even bother on saxophone and flute because that was my primary thing was clarinet. And again, I wanted to be the, at this point, the principal clarinet player in the Chicago Symphony. Um, and at the end of my audition, the uh, guy that was the head of the department said, do you have any other questions? I said, yeah, yeah, I got some other questions. Um, who do I talk about, like maybe minoring in guitar? I also play guitar. 
and I'd like to see about that. And he goes, look, kid, we're about to give you a full scholarship on clarinet. I wouldn't mention on your exit interview that you play guitar because you do realize it's not a musical instrument, right? And I was crushed. Yeah. I was absolutely crushed. So they didn't even have a guitar pro. This was before Sharon Isbin mm-hmm. started the classical program. I think she was the first uh, one there. And um, I just remember being crushed that I couldn't play guitar if I went to Juilliard. And on the way home uh, in the airplane, and, and, and by the way, New York terrified me. Uh, coming from Denver Absolutely. in the 80s. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you want to talk about getting into trouble. You could get a lot of trouble in New York then. And it just terrified me. So what I did was is I kind of was telling my dad on the airplane that I don't think I want to be a clarinet player anymore. And my dad was the sweetest man in the world, but he was so mad. <laughs> he didn't talk to me for like two weeks. He was like, <laughs> go to Juilliard, get the degree, worry about the guitar. You can play the guitar for the rest of your life. Get the degree from Juilliard. It's free. You know, I have to pay yeah. So long story short, I didn't, I didn't have to, I didn't have the, uh, the, the prowess anymore to want to be a, guitar, a clarinet player. So I kind of got a scholarship on clarinet, guitar, multi-instrument at the University of Colorado, Denver, and ended up staying there and, and studying guitar there and composition. Ended up being a composition major. Yeah. And how did you move from there on to, to Los Angeles and the Grove School? Los Angeles was an interesting thing. One of the guys that used to hang out at my dad's shop was a guy named Mikey Perito. And his brother was Nick Perito, who was Perry Como's conductor for a million years. And Nick had come to a party we were playing for his sister's anniversary or birthday or something. But he came and, and he heard a couple of the arrangements I'd done for my dad's big band. And he kind of said... Uh, through meeting him, he said, well, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I, I don't know. I'm going to get, get, being, get, get out of school pretty soon. Um, I don't know. I always wanted to move to L.A. It was always my dream to be an L.A. musician, either as a woodwind player or as a something. And he goes, well, I'm teaching at this school, the Grove School of Music, and you should maybe come out. I think you're, you'd audition well. So he took some of my charts back and showed them to Dick Grove, who was still the head of school at, the point, at that point. And they gave me a scholarship. I did, um, I did two years there. I studied arranging and composition and film composition. Uh, so they gave me a couple of scholarships to go there. And that was my foray into L.A., moving out there. That was, that's how I got there, was going wow. to school. So while you're at the Grove School, does it all of a sudden, you know, what's going through your mind as far as, okay, how am I going to make a living? Oh, yeah. Uh, going through the Grove School was a real eye-opener because... We would get an assignment to do an arrangement on a Thursday. And I think the first one was like rhythm section and solo trumpet. And that's how they started you. And you got an assignment on Thursday and you had a play down on Tuesday. And you had, so you had a weekend and a couple of days to write the chart, arrange the chart, you know, meet with your singer if you had a singer or whatever, figure out the key, do all the copying yourself with an ink pen. We had to learn to do it with an ink pen. And then show up at the session on Tuesday and conduct it. So we had a conducting teacher, we had arranging teachers, we had all this stuff. And that was every day for two years. Every week for two years, that was the the thing. And it was stressed to us that you never are a person that would show up and have something not finished. Everything always gets finished. That's like the number one rule. And that style of working and the way that the decision-making process was laid out at the school for writing an arrangement, Dick taught us how to write an arrangement in a day. You know, 
And it was really fascinating the way the working procedure helped. That's what helped me get into a professional world, is being able to walk in and do something immediately and have it done and finished and on time. That was the most important thing that I got from the school. Do I, do I use some of the arranging techniques? Yeah, sure. And, and you use a bunch of other stuff that you pick. You meet people all the time and you get something you like from this guy and something you like from this guy. But the working procedure at Grove was stellar. That's what they really taught. And so what were some of your first, you know, gigs or jobs or things oh, that you were doing out, out of school? Fresh out of school, my first gig was doing uh, karaoke takedowns. Yes. I was doing takedowns for a karaoke thing for a producer named Jeff Weber. And on that, those dates were Jay Leach and Carl Verheyen. And Carl was very, very nice to me. He befriended me and kind of took me under his wing and showed me a lot of the ropes, took me to dates. Um, I studied with Carl for a number of years. And um, it was really cool because I bring in a chart again. And we, we, we went to Camp Weber, as we would say. You know, you go there for four or five days and you do these exact takedowns. I mean, Jeff would even say, if there's a symbol that fell at the session, I want it on the chart. Yeah. You know, and so you'd show up. And there were a couple of times that... Uh, I saddled up and played some guitar. Those were early sessions for me playing on karaoke dates. And uh, at the same time, through some of the other people I met on those dates, I got a bunch of record dates from Mexico. They would come up and you do a Mexican, you do a whole record in a day. Yeah. You know, you just fire them out, you know, boom, boom, boom. You know, no, no music, no charts. They just play a tune, something, a demo for you, lay down a part and move on. Maybe stay a little after for a solo or something, but it was pretty much a rhythm section tracking stuff. So that was excellent stuff. And then that matured into doing cartoon dates. That's when cartoons were still, Hanna-Barbera was still a studio. Right. And uh, my guitar teacher at the time was a guy named Steve Carnelli, who was the guy at Hanna-Barbera for guitar and Warner Brothers when they used it. So I started subbing for him and he'd take me to dates. And so I played a lot of Hanna-Barbera dates when I first was there. Yeah. And those were super challenging. Those were some of the hardest music I've ever played. Why so? It was relentless notes. It was all voiced out. All the chords were voiced out. All the charts were like just fast and banging charts. I mean, you've heard car to cartoon music. Right. And it was, it was a great training field because eventually as an orchestrator, I ended up orchestrating a lot of cartoon dates. I was orchestrating all like Pinky and the Brain and uh, Animaniacs and uh, Sylvester and Tweety, that whole era of stuff. And it's all ferocious music, yeah, all but, fast. And But yes, you're, you're right. When you're thinking about the music that's in so many cartoons, yeah. it's, it's, it is relentless and yeah. usually very noty because there's always conflict of some kind yeah. going on or something. And it's almost yeah. always taken from classical literature. They use a lot of Liszt and he has a lot of, in Chopin, a lot of piano stuff that we would orchestrate in portions because the guys there knew their music the directors knew music cartoon music on and these guys that i was working for eric schmidt and these guys came out of the stock carl stalling camp and they knew that wow. style so you'd get um you'd have to orchestrate a uh, list piano concerto for three two flutes clarinet you know it was a 20 30 piece orchestra and saxophone i mean that was the difference between Hanna barbera and um warner brothers warner brothers had saxophone and rarely guitar. Hanna-Barbera had some saxophone guitar, but tuba was a big okay. color. And we yeah. didn't usually have tuba in the Warner Brothers thing. So there was a color yeah. difference there. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. The, the difference in the, in the, the two camps in, yeah. in the, uh, the instrument, instrumentation. They and I think it had a little more of a, like, like I remember Schmidt telling me on one of them, Eric Schmidt, um, who, who told me, he goes, look, if, 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 there's a, if there's a clown, there will be a bassoon or you're wrong. <laughs> 
you know. So there, there's a very different, very different, very specific template for some of that stuff in each camp. So I ended up doing a lot of work early on in my career in cartoons as yeah. a guitar player and as an orchestrator yeah. and learning the styles and yeah. Learn, yeah learning yeah there's a but, lot of rock and roll guitar at Hanna-Barbera a lot of like 50s style rock stuff would come out that's what they kind of saw the guitar player as that guy yeah. and there was even stuff like Steve Carnelli would bring like guitar synths and stuff to those dates and play some of the synth parts when that was fairly early they were old rolling guitar synths and stuff yeah so they were pretty more they were a little more progressive over there but that's that's how i got started in studios was through guys like steve carnelli mitch holder um tim may carl verheyen uh i basically got to befriend my 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 idols i got to be friends with them um i used to have their pictures up in my locker yeah like i'd cut them out of guitar player magazine <laughs> i have a picture of tim may yeah. you know at some session uh, Tommy Tedesco at some session at, in my locker, and other guys. The other guys would have you know some football guy in their locker, and they go, yeah. "Who's that dude?" No, that's, or a swimsuit, or a swimsuit model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I was a little more yeah. taken with the guitar player, Studio LA guitar players. You you hear all sorts of different stories about yeah. you because know, some some guitarists are very territorial and some are not. I haven't met any that are territorial, to be honest with you. I mean, everybody that I've met. In, uh, I've been maybe maybe lucky, blessed, I don't know, but all the guys I've met, I just think they're all nice cats. Right. I mean, they're all very humble because the studio will humble you very, very quickly. And it's not the kind of place where you're gonna last long if you're a jerk. Absolutely. You know, it just isn't that, there's no time, there's no money. That's the real bottom line, there's no money for that. I remember Verheyen telling me I had, you had to get this studio cool thing together yeah <laughs> elaborate on that and, and i asked him about that i said what, what do you mean by studio cool what does that mean he said sit down and shut up don't say anything unless you're you know it's like it's your grandma's house don't speak unless spoken to and that's 90 percent of it and but as a guitar player we always because of the tommy tedesco mold we're always supposed to be the guy with the quip at the right moment maybe to break the tension or something like right. that. So I think all the guys that I met were always very cool. All the studio musicians I met were great and very giving and very nice and very willing to give you their time. When does soundtrack work come into this? Soundtrack work, yeah, that, that was a really interesting uh, progression. I think, I think my, whole, my whole career has always been uh, a, a set, of, set of circumstances that have happened and that I've just kind of thrown myself into. I don't know that I ever really you know, went to try and knock down those walls and get in per se, it just kind of happened because I would get a call from somebody. And I remember Tommy Tedesco telling me, you know, just say yes, figure it out on the way to the gig. Yeah. So I kind of adopted that. And I think it's become my mantra. And I try to tell people this, I'm in the business of selling yes. And I think that helps a lot with people because they don't want to know why you're saying yes, or if you're saying no, but you really mean yes, or you're saying yes, but you really mean, they just want to hear yes. They don't want to hear yes, but I can't get there till three o'clock because I got to pick my son up. They just want to hear yes, I'll be there at two o'clock. See you then. And everything shows up and it goes perfectly and you're done. So I think that having that with that kind of instilled in me with studying with Tommy, that helped a lot. And all the guys are like that. And it became a thing that the cartoons and TV kind of waned down at a certain point. All these things have a five to seven year arc usually. So that's five to seven year arc was winding down and the TV thing was going away. So I became a copyist 
you know, I'm a big fan of eating. That's my favorite part, is eating and putting food on the table. So I found that because I'd studied at Grove, I could copy pretty well. And this is back when it started by hand. So I started as a copyist at a couple of places and ended up at a shop called, um, called Joanne Kane Music, which had huge clients like John Williams and James Newton Howard, um, Danny Elfman, guys like that. So I was copying those scores every day and learning from them as I was going. And I also proofread on, uh, for, for, I was one of the guys that proofread for John Williams, sketched a score um, at, their, at, their, at their office. Uh, there was a, there's a lot of that. Most orchestrators have a proofreader of some sort. Uh, I do. That's what I do. I have a proofreader that checks everything. Um, it just makes things be quicker. So I can, while he's proofing, I can move on to the next cue. And I got to the end of doing that kind of work. I think that the cool part of it was is it kind of by osmosis taught me to orchestrate. Absolutely. Seeing all this stuff. Yeah. And I would go to the sessions because I was also become what was called a librarian. You go to the date, you bring the music, you pass the music out. Everybody knew me there from being a guitar player. So I would pass out the music, talk with the guys, change, fix stuff if it needed to be. And by this time we were into computer music and computer copying. And I was sitting there one day and a, a, a now great friend of mine, Jeff at Majian, uh, came by and saw in my bag a book. I think it was called Anatomy of the Orchestra. And he goes, oh, are you reading that? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm reading that. I'm really, it's really cool. He goes, yeah, I read that. That's a great book. I said, yeah, it's been, you know, helpful with what I do at Joanne. He goes, and he kind of talked about it. He said, oh, you're a proofreader. I said, yeah. He goes, I need a proofreader. I said, okay. So I started proofreading for Jeff. And we traded proofreading for orchestration lessons. Wow. And he was one of my favorite orchestrators anyway. And I did that with a couple other people like Pat Russ and guys that were really well-known orchestrators at the time. And again, they became good friends. And that's how I learned to really orchestrate and be at sessions. And because it was, again, it was just saying yes. Saying yes to what was presented at the time. Like, let, let's take for, for an example on, on John Williams. So you're seeing like a, a master score and then you're, you're copying out the individual parts for the different instruments just to, to kind of sure, take sure. that down to a, a level that, you yeah. Know, yeah. It, it's, it's, um, it's a job that you have to know a lot about music to do it because you're extracting once maybe a flute part off the score which is in the key of C and there's no transposition. The next thing down is an, an oboe and an English horn. Those uh, the oboe doesn't transpose, but the English horn does. Clarinet transpose is different from that. And you have to lay out a part so it's easy for the players to read. And it was interesting coming from being a player. I'd seen these parts laid out really, really well on dates. And you could always tell how the chart was going to go by how the part looked. Because if it was easy and it, and it read itself, it played itself. Right. So it was a really important job to have. And I took it very, very seriously. And, and it, I had a really good hand when we were doing it by hand and good layouts. And so you, you take all these things off and put them on the parts for the players. And it helps the player play perfectly. Because we're asking these guys to play what they're seeing perfectly the first time. Absolutely perfectly the first time to the best of their ability. And you want to help them as much as you can. So if you've got a badly laid out part, it makes it twice as hard for the player to negotiate. Yeah. Especially if it was right after a well laid out part and then you see this yeah. mess and you're like, oh man, it's going to be a long day. Yeah. I just want it to be right. You just want it to be right the first time. Yeah. yeah. So keep, keep us going in the, in the progression of, you know, so you're, so you're a copyist. When, when do you start actually getting into orchestrating? Uh, that was um, largely thanks to Jeff at Magian and um, Pat Russ, 
they were nice enough to let me finish pages for them sometimes or help them if they got stuck on another gig, they'd throw me some work. And eventually they became, began to rely on me to do that stuff. And then I was uh, playing in one of our church bands one time and one of the uh, other musicians who became a very good friend, uh, Tom Mergadishian, uh, said to me, hey, do you do this for a living? Do you write? Because I think I'd done a chart for the, for the band or something. I go, yeah. And he goes, well, this guy I'm working with needs an orchestrator. And it turned out to be a guy named Teddy Castellucci. And Teddy did a bunch of the Adam Sandler movies, all the way back to uh, his first one was The Wedding Singer. Okay. So I joined around Mr. Deeds. This was my first movie with them as an orchestrator. And that was like, after doing cartoon dates, this was like really freeing in a way because it was a little more time than a TV show. It was more as a bigger orchestra, and we got them very regularly. Like they were putting, you know, Sandler would do two movies a year sometimes. And so we were working a lot and very closely, and, and we're all still great friends. But that was how I got into orchestration was through Teddy and him allowing me to try my wings in a big orchestra setting. Yeah. Um, and then after that, um, kind of waned down. And again, another five-year arc, five to seven-year arc in that world. I had gotten a call from a friend of mine that said, hey, um, do you know a guy named Bruce Fowler? And I said, well, I know the Fowler brothers because they used to come to our school, which is where I went to University of Colorado. Their dad taught there. He was my composition teacher. And the Fowler brothers um, were basically Zappa's backup band, and they would okay. tour on their own too. Mothers of Invention. There were four or five brothers. And uh, I knew Bruce as trombone player and Walt, trumpet player, still great friends. I still work with him on the Han stuff. And... Um, I went to Bruce's house and I said, hey man, uh, or I called Bruce. And he said, hey man, why don't you come over, try a cue, see how it goes. Gave me a cue, said, you know, I had all my stack of cool stuff I was going to show him. And he just gives me a CD and goes, have this on the stand tomorrow morning. Close the door. <laughs> okay. So I went and I orchestrated it and we did it and it went fine. It was all cool. And I think that it just kind of blossomed from there with, with that camp. It was like, okay, can you do a couple more next time? Can you do a couple more next time? And, you know, that's 20 years later. I'm still working for Hans and those guys uh, yeah. on a regular basis doing movies. So that one's been a little longer of an arc in that world. But that's how that came out of guitar playing. It, it's like when you're when you're studio, studio guitar player back in those days, I caught the tail end of two and three dates a day where you're doing double dates, maybe maybe a jingle at night or in the morning and then a TV show and you know or something, a movie date. I caught the tail end of that. And those are really exhausting days. And they're really hard to keep up that pace for more than about four or five years. It'll burn you out. Yeah. And people tended, like Jay Graydon went on to becoming a producer. Larry Carlton went on to being an artist. Lee Rittenauer on to being an artist. You either went on to another portion of the music business or you didn't work anymore. Right. So I went on to another portion of the business after I had run my career as a studio guitar player as that kind of a guy. Yeah. And also to be clear that 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 level of work is not out there as much anymore. No, it's really not. No, it, it's um, it doesn't exist that way. Studio work is is this at home now for a lot of people. And there were a lot of guys doing it back then like um, uh, fabulous, one of the most recorded guitar players in history um, uh, that people may or may not know, his name is, is um, George Deering. George has been working for home, from home, he's had his own home studio for years, as has Dean Parks. Yeah. So those guys were not by any stretch behind the curve. They were ready to go anyway. 
Tim, Tim Pierce, really good friend of mine. I basically stole all of my ideas from Tim of how to set up a studio you know, where you can work quickly, you know, guitars are close by, amps are close by, your switching's close by, everything's set up. So that's what this has become uh, for most people, especially with COVID, that bumped everything up five years. Yeah. And getting back a, a little bit, how did you come into the uh, the attention of Hans Zimmer? Just through Bruce, like, yeah. like I was saying in that other story, I think it was basically through Bruce and um, Walt, who was a good friend of mine with the Fowler brothers. Yeah. It was one of those things where Walt and Bruce trusted me enough because I'd studied with their dad composition. And that was just luck. Yeah. Had I gone to Juilliard, I would have never studied with Doc Fowler, Bill Fowler, um, who Hans also knew and cared about because he used to, I think from what, from what Walt and Bruce have told me, he used to read um, Doc Fowler's downbeat articles in, when he was in Germany. And uh, that was a source of his musical knowledge, was reading his. So I'm kind of a legacy, I think, a little bit that way. Yeah. Um, and I knew somebody. I was friends with them. So that helped a lot. I think that's really important. You were talking about finding work. Um, you work for your friends. You're right. Yeah. You really do. You end up yeah. working for your friends. Yeah. So not that you want to go out and cultivate only people that are working, but you know, that's who you want to start with and figure out how they are, how they do their thing. If you're a cool dude and they get on with you, great. If it doesn't work out, that's okay too. You still stay cordial and friends with them and maybe you'll work for them someday. Yeah. Yeah. What were some memorable experiences with some of these, uh, you know, soundtracks that, oh, uh, well, I mean, of course, you know, we saw the uh, little Grammy award for uh, the Joker and oh, some yeah. of the other things. And yeah, the Joker was an awesome score to work on. Very different. Uh, Hilder's a fabulous composer. She's really, really nice person. Um, everybody's different. All the composers are different. They all have their own way of doing things. Um, James Newton Howard is very different. Um, I've never orchestrated for James. I've copied and done MIDI prep for James. Uh, he's very different from Hans, who is very different from John Williams, who is very different from Hilder. All these people are different from Teddy. They all have their own way of doing things. And it's all based really on their life experience and what has worked for them over the years. So I think that when you, when you work for these guys and you find out what they need from you, that becomes really important. Yeah. Um, to elaborate on that just a little bit, it's much different to get a call from a guy that is very laid back in his approach and everything's kind of just, you know, going along and he's been doing this for 30 years, as opposed to getting a call from a newer guy who's maybe a little more uh, on the edge about what's going on. Maybe he doesn't have as much power with the studios as the guy that the venerable veteran has. So you have to kind of be malleable to your situation and kind of figure that kind of stuff out. Um, some of the best times in my life have been on movie dates where you, you just... You can't believe how unbelievable these musicians are. They're insane, insanely great. We were on, I was working on Batman and Robin and I was a copyist and I think orchestrator on that at some point. They had everybody orchestrating on that thing. And I remember being there for a percussion date and it was every famous percussionist you could imagine in LA. You know, Joe Picaro, Jeff Picaro's dad, all the way to Steve Schaefer. You know, all these guys were playing a snare drum marching thing. And that's all it was. It was the end of the night. It was, you know, like um, 
quarter to 12. We had 15 minutes until we were going into quadruple overtime. Right. Like serious, serious cash. So that is a nine or 10 minute queue, something like that. And there was a false start. So we were getting down to where this was going to be the last queue of the night or we're in trouble. And it was all snare drums. There was like six or seven of them. And they were playing this incredible snare drum thing, really amazing. And they kept playing, they're playing, and nobody's making a mistake. And it's just perfect. And they're getting it. They're going, they're going. And I see Schaefer lean over to Jeff, to Joe Picaro and go, what about the tam-tam hit at the end? And Joe goes, man, don't worry about it. And we were playing, and we're looking at the watch. You know, we're watching, and they're playing, they're playing, they're playing, they're playing. And just as the last few bars are coming off, Joe switches to playing a part that most guys would play with two hands to playing it with one hand, reaches down and grabs a super ball and flings it over the top of all the percussionists and hits the tam-tam on the downbeat to end the cue. And the, nobody said a word because they knew the tail had to happen or they're going to start all over. Yeah. Tail of the music being the ring out from the room. Everybody was silent until the tail was done. And then it just uproarious laughter. Yeah. It was something like I've never seen before. It was an awesome, <laughs> and stuff like that would happen all the time. Yeah. All the time. Those guys are just, you know, they're, they're such veterans and they've been yeah. doing it for so long and, yeah. and it's just, they're not stressed about it. And you know. No, not at all. It's like Mitch Holder always says, studio works easy if you do it all the time. And that's the truth. You can't do it some of the time. Yeah. You have to do it all the time for it to be fun and easy. If you're just doing studio work some of the time, it's pretty terrifying. Yeah, yeah. being under the microscope. Yeah, you're under the microscope. It's, it's like Tommy used to say, it's 90% boredom, 10% sheer terror. Yeah. Yeah. So Carl, let's get real practical here, okay. and let's talk about uh, let's talk about the guy that's in school because you're you're actually now a adjunct professor at Belmont University, right? And yeah. and you're teaching a DAW, correct? Daw? I'm teaching Daw as a musical instrument. I think it's the first uh, school to do that. I think um, we moved here about a year ago. Yes, and uh, we were going to eventually um, buy another place somewhere. We were living primarily in LA. We have a place in London and we were gonna buy something somewhere and I'd been doing a lot of video games here as a orchestrator and conductor. And I got tired of being in hotels, quite frankly. So we were gonna get a condo here or something. And then after running the numbers and my wife absolutely loves living here. I love living here. We kind of flipped it. So we condo in LA, condo there and a flat in London and then a house here. So it kind of covers every place that I work. And um, in coming here, uh, through working at Ocean Way, uh, Pat, the studio manager over there, 
is also faculty, because Ocean Way is part of Belmont, uh, introduced me to Jeff Kirk. And Jeff Kirk's the head of music over at Belmont, and he wanted me to come and, and teach something. So we're starting with this, uh, which is Dawes, a musical instrument, which is you know what I use all the time on the computer. Um, so I think it's going to be a really interesting thing to figure out, because I think that teaching completes the circle. You know, you learn something, you do it, and then you teach it. And I think it's really important. I, I think that, that that was a part of my life that hadn't come full circle yet in being a teacher because there was never any time. So I'm kind of in, really enjoying that side of it a lot. So I'm still doing my normal everyday work, but it's nice because the DAW students are all, and it works better, we're all remote. Not because of COVID, but because they have their gear, I've got my gear, and we can talk back and forth via Zoom or something, right. and everybody's comfortable that way. So yeah, that's been really important. Yeah. Let's talk about, you know, you've got these students, and they're all going to want to, uh, they're all going to want to make a living, yeah. especially after paying for, you know, their education and yeah. such. So let's talk, you know, real practical. Let's talk about, you know, uh, getting work. Getting work. Okay. So it used to be when I came out to LA, you kind of did what I did. You started somewhere and you progressed up a ladder that kind of existed. Like you'd be, a, you know, you'd be working at a studio. You were a runner first, and then you became like a night engineer or an overnight guy, and then you'd work your way up to producer. Or like in the studio side of it, you'd be a player that worked to, out to becoming a producer or, uh, an or, or a writer, arranger, takedown guy that became an orchestrator, conductor, composer or player, conductor, orchestrator, composer, some sort of a ladder that you went up. That doesn't exist anymore. There's not an opportunity to do that because there's less work. And I don't want to paint an ugly picture of it, but there's just less work. So the guys coming out today have one great advantage over us. Because there's less work and there's less, there is no ladder, they literally have no rules. They can do anything they want. You want to come out of college and say, I'm a film composer, go do that. You don't have to start somewhere and work your way to it. You just have to get noticed somehow. Great ways to get noticed are YouTube, social media. People are looking around all the time for that. A lot of people, a lot of bands have been discovered lately on YouTube. Uh, Dirty Loops, yeah. great example. Um, Snarky Puppy. A lot of those guys were doing crowdfunding um, lots of bands doing crowdfunding on YouTube to get their album done, and then somebody sees it and picks them up. So social media is a great way to get noticed, but it doesn't pay that much. No. <laughs> As we all know, in these circumstances, it doesn't really pay the bills. It can pay a percentage of the bills, depending on how you monetize that. But it will get you noticed, hopefully, if you have the right way of laying it out and the right labeling for your show or whatever. Um, you get a following. But that's kind of a get-rich-slow scheme. When you're coming out of school today and you're coming out of, you know, out of it into the workforce, be it a school or you're just trying to get in the workforce, people value a couple of things. They value speed, accuracy, and cheap, to be perfectly blunt. Um, not that there's a race to the bottom, but you're going to have to do some work at first for not a lot of money. And it's always been that way. That's nothing new. But today there's like budgets on things are almost non-existent. There used to be like a low budget, maybe an ultra low budget, a middle budget, and then a high budget, kind of a tier. 
low and middle budget went away, uh, probably early 2000s, about the same time the romantic comedy stopped being filmed, at least in my world. Those were always $40 million budgets. They kind of went away, and now there's no budget. It's either as much money as you want, do anything you want, like for the big tentpole movies, or there's no budget and you're doing an indie film. So it's really difficult now to sit there and go, what am I going to value myself at? How am I going to come out of the shoot, try and make a living, and value myself? Well, there's a couple of things that you, that you can do that um, have worked for people that I know that are the younger guys coming out. A lot of people will go on YouTube and do uh, mock-ups of things, and they'll go, hey, here's my version of that. And that tends to get people noticed because, you know, the title of the thing is in your, your, your YouTube moniker there, or whatever they call it. It'll say, you know... Um, I don't know, some name of some famous tune featuring or redone by, and that'll get, you know, hits for you. So all the kind of social media stuff has become really relevant, I think, to getting you seen. Again, it's hard to monetize. So you have to do sessions or you have to do club dates or weddings or whatever it is, or be a support crew for somebody. Right. Starting out as a support crew can be really helpful. And what about the mindset that you need? Yeah, the mindset is about is everything. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, um, my wife is is uh, is a, probably the smartest person I've ever met. She uh, she has this thing that she says you have to be open and curious, and that will help you get across the finish line. Being an open and curious means that instead of being the guy that there's always that guy in the room that has a, a problem for every solution, don't be that guy. Be the guy that's open and curious because it might broaden your world a little bit. Even if the idea is first blush to you, kind of weird, and you go, ah, I don't like that. Don't be that guy. Be the guy that goes, let's try it. Yeah. Let's give it a shot. You know, tape's cheap. <laughs> Digital tape's cheap. Let's give it a shot. Or um, I support that. Let's, let's get that down the road a little ways. Instead of being the guy that goes, oh, man, I don't like that. Or, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not into that. You know, that, that open and curious mindset will help you be much more friendly to people upon first meeting and first contact. Because first contact is very important. You know, you got to come in. When you walk into a room, half of the deal is reading the room and going, what's going on here? Who's in charge? We used to have the thing that said, who's the witch doctor? You got to figure out who the witch doctor is because that's the guy that's going to shrink your head. It may not be who you think. You could walk into any meeting anywhere, and I've seen it happen a lot, where you think the guy that's the producer is running the show, and it's actually not. It might be the director. It might be someone else that you have no idea who they are. So again, being open and curious immediately sets you in a mindset where you're friendlier, you're nicer, you're more approachable, and you're not making a predetermined idea or a concept of anything. Yeah. You just walk into the room and you go, let's see what happens. Yeah. Can you give us an example of, of that in your own career? Um, I remember being on a uh, one of the few times, I mean, I think I've only been fired once, and that was by Debbie Reynolds. I was playing at the Elish Theater in Denver very early, I was in college, I was subbing for my guitar teacher, and it was the Debbie Reynolds show, and it was her traveling band was a percussionist and a piano player, and the rest of us were pickup guys. 
And we were playing, and I we, there's one guitar solo in the whole book. And I had not thought it was very important for me to check my battery that day. And I had an old heavy metal pedal, and we all know what those sounded like. There was one setting. Yeah. Yeah. On. And furious. So I go to step on that for my solo, and it sounded like this. <laughs> you know, just awful. She's looking back, and the, then the trumpet player cacked a note. Closed the curtains. She turns around, she goes, oh, yeah, good night, everybody. Close the curtains. Okay. Don't ever, you know, you guys are screwing up my show. Second show, I had to run out and grab a battery and stuff. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, this sucks. You know, I'm playing for nothing against Debbie Reynolds. I love Debbie Reynolds now. But then I was like, oh, she's a little has-been. What is she doing? You know, I'm Superman. Yeah. Some inflated idea. I had a very closed mindset. So I was angry when I had to go bit a battery and I had to come back and I had to plug the thing in. And then I took a nice solo. It was good. It sounded cool. She was, but the trumpet player cacked a note again. And she turned around after saying, good night, everybody. Hey, have a great night. She turned around and goes, that half of the band, you're all fired. And I happened to be on that half of the band. So I had to go tell my guitar teacher I lost his gig for him. And I swore at that point, I would not prejudge the situation anymore and be prepared. That was a two great lessons from that. Not prejudge what they're trying to do because she's still the one that's out there putting on the show, doing it every night. I need to step up to that place. And if I don't have an open and curious mindset, and I didn't even know what that meant or how to label it then, but it was more like, you know, I need to be open to the situation and not be so closed-minded. And why did I bring a heavy metal pedal to the Debbie Reynolds gig? That was a terrible idea. Just because I thought it was cool in college, you know, that's not being open and curious. That's being closed-minded and being bugged about stuff. Well, the reality is, is you should have your pedals ready to go. They should be on a pedal board. They should have proper power. You should have all extra cables, extra strings, extra guitar, all backup stuff, as we know we should. That allows you now to free your mind to the situation because you've taken care of business already. So when you show up to the date and you go, man, my cable doesn't work. You just reach down, grab another one, plug it in, plug it in, boom, you're done, let's go. Let's go to work. Because people don't want to hear about your problems. They want to hear yes. Yeah. That's part They've, of selling yes. You're you're there to play guitar. Yeah. You're not there to complain or to say my my amp blew up or no. what have you. They don't care. They yeah, they really don't care. They don't care. And and there's a little bit of I think what Carl was saying about Studio Cool is also having peace of mind that you know that if the worst came to worst, you could run out the car and get your other amp. You might miss a few minutes or you might have to stop for a minute or maybe your amp's on stage behind or you set them on top of each other or something so that all you have to do is switch. Um, that's a life-saving technique. And I think those are really important things to understand too. You know, have your strings together, have your guitar restrung. This guitar I restring every Sunday, whether I'm playing or not. Some of the other ones I don't, or I'll have some other people, Cartage guys, redo them. But this one guitar that's my main guitar, I restring it myself every Sunday. So I know Monday I'm ready to go. And like I have a go bag that has a distortion pedal, a chorus echo pedal, a power supply, extra cables, extra tubes, uh, paper um, um, clips, you know, like old uh, clothesline yeah, like clothes clips yeah. for playing outside, yeah. extra light bulbs, extra tubes, extra picks. Everything is ready in a go bag that's always ready to walk out the door and be ready to go. And I think it influences your mindset a lot. And that's really what makes you valuable to people is a good mindset.
how should you prep for a, a gig? Prepping for a gig for me, I mean, I'll, I'll quote uh, Pat Metheny. It's a four hour process if I'm gonna go play Happy Birthday for my son. I kind of remember him saying that at one point and I kind of took it to heart. If I, like this morning, I was up practicing at 5 a.m. to hang out here, only because it helps that mindset that I know I've warmed up. Am I gonna sound that much better? I don't know, maybe. Maybe there's just an ounce more confidence than there would be if I just sat down and had to play something. Um, it comes through as being prepared. So prepping for me for a gig is making sure that, you know, the bag is right, everything's in my bag. I'll take everything out and plug it in. There's nothing worse than getting to the gig and yesterday your amp worked. That's awful feeling. And it's the only one you brought. Yeah. You know, so I'll plug in a rig, like if I'm gonna take a, a head like this or something, I'll plug it in, make sure the speaker cables work, make sure I have extra speaker cables, make sure I'm, you know, I've got my extra strings, I've got my extra stuff, but then I'll sit and I'll practice and warm up for a while. And I try to do it as quietly as possible. I try not to make a lot of noise when I'm warming up. I try to practice, you know, acoustically, very lightly. Why so? If you practice this kind of stuff, for me, this is just for me, if I do this. I'm already thinking about a thing, be it my technique or my, am I hitting the string too hard? If I'm just sitting here practicing quietly like this. Just a little vibrato. My wrist is loose all of a sudden, you know. I just practice, you know, getting a, a tone, trying to say, you know, how's this, how are the strings today? You know, does the neck need adjustment? You know, does how's my... I'll do stuff like that very quietly. Um, trying to practice as calmly as possible and warm up as calmly. I've, I've tried the, the thing where you sit there and you go, and it just sounds like that, sloppy. Right. You know, it's not a confidence build. Yeah. And it sounds like you're, you're actually interacting with the instrument yeah. in, in, the, <laughs> in playing slower. Yeah. It sounds like you're pulling a sound and you're, you're reacting to the instrument. Mm -hmm. You're reacting to it. Yeah. And, and you're setting yourself up for success. You're setting yourself up because, uh, you know that, those memes that they, they're in the, on the Facebook, they'll, they'll say what my mom thinks I do, what I think I do, what grandma thinks I do, what, what my daughter, right. what my dog thinks I do. Yes. Well, a lot of people, you know, think you're, you know, you're doing, you know, stuff like this all day where... <laughs> That's what I think I do. What I, in essence, really do is this. Or you have some big walk of a chord. There's a big difference from practicing this in the morning if you're gonna, if you're gonna go. Well, you just get tight, but, and then you have to play this on a downbeat beautifully in time with a 70-piece orchestra. That doesn't help. <laughs> Going like this does. 
that's a good warm-up for me. And again, this is just for me, and I'm, yeah, my opinion. I'm charging you exactly what it's worth. Yeah. Um, so I, I warm up pretty quietly and very slowly and practice tone. I practice vibe. I practice my vibrato. I practice trying to look ahead in music, like reading ahead in, in my head and reading ahead and looking at a piece of music without the guitar and imagining how I would play it. That's another warm-up I'll do. I'll look at a piece of music with the guitar in the stand and just go, okay, wh where would I play that? Okay, that's kind of a seventh fret thing maybe, or you know, I'm, I'm gonna look at a key of F sharp today. So that's kind of the warm-ups that I do. Let's, let's talk about some uh, gear philosophy. So, because, you know, as guitar, well, it doesn't matter what, what, uh, what field you're in, yeah. there can be this focus on the equipment. Absolutely. No matter, no matter what it is. Yeah. And so with the guitar, with the guitarist, we're, you know, notorious for wanting to, to just buy gear. Let's talk about the gear that you actually use. Yeah. Gear yeah. that you actually use. Okay. So yeah. cool. Um, I would say that 80% of my work is done on this guitar. Yeah. Um, only because I'm used to it, I know it, I've, I've changed pickups on it, I've touched every part of it. Um, it stays in tune really well. Um, I would say I grab this thing first and if it's not working then I grab something else. That's probably my hierarchy. Um, I have a lot of guitars. Does this one work all the time? No. Um, by and large in film and TV it's a less demanding sound of authenticity. It just needs to give a flavor of something. Whereas on a record date, you'd go, well, if I want a Les Paul, I'm gonna go pick up a Les Paul. Right. So, but do you need a lot of gear is a question that comes up a lot. I don't think you need a lot of gear. I mean, the, most of the great records we listen to, most of those guys had one guitar, maybe two. You know, um, the guys that used to come to dates, they'd bring a Princeton and a 335 like Larry had. Yeah. And or a deluxe, whatever he was using, I forget which one it was, but that sounded great on a lot of dates. A lot of dates, that's all those guys were using, one or two guitars. Coming to a date with 20 guitars is not that important. It's do you know the guitar, can you play the guitar, and everything else is 10%. Yeah. Honestly, the difference between a 54 Strat and a 54 Strat reissue that's Mexican is still about 10%. And, but there can be this this whole you know focus on 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 pedals and and rack gear and having all these different amps. So you said that you know this you know this guitar is you know is what you use the most. Mm -hmm. And you know what what other pieces of gear you know as far as your the guitarist part of you. Yeah, the guitarist like, part. Like, of me. <laughs> like you know what are just you know like essentials in doing soundtrack work. For me, in doing soundtrack work, I think you have to have some, you have to have a Tele, a Les Paul, some sort of a semi-hollow body and a Strat. Yeah. If you got those four things, you're pretty well covered. Maybe a Gretsch of some sort, um, a Rickenbacker of some sort, be it a 12 or a six. Um, if nothing else for eye candy is always a good thing. It's great to have the stuff, but there's a lot of times where you go, you know, this thing isn't sitting in the mix. And that's what's important to me. Having those guitars are great. And if someone says, look, I want a Dwayne Allman sound, I'm not gonna probably play it on this. I'm gonna grab a Les Paul and tune it in E and play slide. Yeah, That's probably what I'm gonna do. Partially for the vibe of it and partially for the sound of it. But by the same token, if I did that same thing on this guitar, 10% different. 
So it's really important that it sit in the mix, though. So there have been times where I go, yeah, you want the Dwayne Allman thing? I'll grab my Les Paul, I'll tune it to E, I'll play slide, and it doesn't sit in the mix because of everything else that's going on around it. For me, I'm a lot of times in a mix with a large orchestra. And I'm having to do my Dwayne Allman thing doubling with a violin section. So that sound is very, very thick because he was in a rhythm section bass group. So it had to carry a lot further. So him cranking up a Marshall with that guitar may not be the best answer, even though it's that vibe for me playing with the string section. I may want a thinner sound. Yeah, so how do you fix that? You immediately grab a Strat or I go to a different pickup setup, a combination, like I'll go to a back pickup combination and go for that, but you can't lose the vibe of it. And the vibe is different for every every session. Is it a session that's moving quickly? Like if like if I'm working here, I don't have a lot of time to change guitars too. That's why they're all set around the room so closely. I need to grab a Les Paul. It's got to be in tune, and I got to go to work. Um, you don't have a lot of time to go. Well, you know, let's try a different amp. These amps here are all on a switching system that you can just pick between and they can run in different places. So I can literally turn a knob, pick an amp setup, pick a combination setup, pick a pick a, a speaker combination setup and get to work. That's what's important in my world is speed. Getting it done. Because they're waiting on the other end. Yeah. Yeah. Because again they're sending you files. Yeah. And you're and you're working from home right. from your studio. Right. And uh, and and they just want it back so that they can they can get it done so they can meet their deadline. One of the value things that I bring to, to studio work, and I think all the guys have done this too, not because we're you know super geniuses or anything, especially me, it's not about being a genius, it's about being prepared for the work that's there. You know, they want to not have cartage, which cartage was this thing where all this stuff around me would get delivered to a date by somebody. It's quite expensive, time-consuming. They don't want to pay for a studio. They want to get the track done now, get into the demo so they can play it for the filmmaker this afternoon. Not stop, hire a band, call a, a contractor. They just want to call you real quick, say, hey, I'm sending you a file, replace the piano part with guitars, and go. So that, that's the process, really, today. That's what makes you valuable is speed. That's another value thing. And, and how do you get speed? You get speed by working procedure. And this is, again, I stole all my working procedure from Tim Pierce because he's the fastest guy in the world at this stuff. Everything's ready to go all the time. Your guitars are always in tune. Your stuff's ready to go. Your amps are serviced. They're on a switch that you can flick it over and you're there in a heartbeat. Your pedals are all always sitting out and ready to go. And you're just always ready for work. And the, so it helps your workflow. And even if you don't have a bunch of stuff, if you've got one guitar and an amp and a couple of pedals, I would say have them out and ready to go all the time. Don't have them sitting in a case somewhere or in a bag somewhere. If you're going to use it, have it out and ready to go and serviced and sounding good. Have a mic always on your app. That's one other thing. There's always something ready to go all the time. So tell us a little bit about this, this Strat. Okay. This guy, this Strat is a uh, custom shop Strat. I think it was originally built for me by, I think it says John Page. It was right. a great build. It was a great, the head of the custom shop. Yeah. He now builds his own guitars, which are fabulous. But I think this is a John Page. Um, this is a custom shop neck off a different guitar. I swapped necks because I like the big headstock. Just me. Yeah. Um, it does add a little more girth. Yeah, it, it's, it adds mass. 
Yeah. It, it, it definitely, it, it changes the sound. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier. Yeah. It's like, what, about a third more mass? Yeah. So I don't know, it just adds a little more sound. Plus, I'm a huge Hendrix nut, so, you know, it's just kind of that vibe. And then um, this body is, like I said, a custom shop body. Um, these are, I think these are DiMarzio um, Lukather models. And this is, you know, your standard middle pickup that everybody uses, especially here. Yeah. Um, the hot hot stack yep. uh, with a switch that I can get the outer to. And no coil tapping, just really simple. It was really heavily influenced by a couple of people. The reason I, I liked this thing was I was heavily influenced by Hiram Bullock, who was a New York guitar player. And he had one guitar, because that, that's all you can get in a cab. Yeah. You know, and he had to have a bunch of sounds. So he had humbuckers. And then I changed it to a black guard because of... Um, Dan Huff. Yeah. <laughs> well, Oddly enough, because of Dan two, Huff. <laughs> two, two, two great players. Yeah. yeah. Hiram was, was the guitarist on the on uh, Letterman, you know, on the, yeah. uh, and originally, yeah. you know, before Sid McGinnis. And uh, yeah. yeah, what a great player. Great course, player. Yeah. yeah. He was a really yeah. cool guy. And he so he heavily influenced that from a stylistic standpoint, if I wanted to have something that could do a lot of stuff. Yeah. Just a lot of stuff. And it's just standard volume and tone. And that's the point of this guitar is, is yeah. versatility. Versatility. Just, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's called the Tone Monkey. Tone Monkey, because that's the yeah. name of your studio. That's the name of the studio. That was, uh, uh, I got that moniker from a guy at one of the copying offices because he had seen me on a session play and he saw all this stuff. He goes, oh, you're like a Tone Monkey. <laughs> what a great <laughs> so, name. <laughs> so that's why it's Tone Monkey Studios. Yeah. So, and then what would you consider like your your main, if this is kind of like the amp, that, I mean, the guitar that you use the most, what would be the corresponding amp that you use the most? Um, for studio work, probably uh, this Bogner Ecstasy, because uh, it's three channels. Yeah. Really versatile amp, bulletproof, another big important thing. Amplifiers, as you well know, are touchy. Yes. I mean, you can have a greatest sound one day, and the next day, woof. Yeah. It could what be happened? anything. And, and what, the way I pick amps is not like the average guy. Uh, I had a, my, my good friend Teddy Castellucci told me one time, and I, I remember this uh, stuck in my head. He goes, I don't know, I don't judge an amp by what it sounds like in the room. I judge how it sounds like in the speakers. Absolutely. Because I never hear my own amps in a room. I don't play gigs per se, like weddings and live shows that much. So an amp to me that sounds great in a room doesn't have a lot of bearing on how it sounds mic'd up or direct. So I think the Bogner sounds really consistent and it has a great crunch channel. I usually leave it on the blue channel. It sounds great. Um, the Nailer, that's another uh, fabulous uh, LA amp, 90s distortion amp that I just love having. And then this Fender Concert is from the uh, Rivera era. Yeah. Very clean, uh, very, very bulletproof. And I think, I think this one was modded by Lee Jackson. I just happened to be, just get that one. I bought it on eBay or something, but it sounds yeah. great. Um, so yeah. And what corresponding speakers would you, you know, run that into? I run that, the, the center channel goes into a Marshall 412 in the other room, uh, mic'd with the usual 57 and a Royer, and then two uh, custom audio 112 on each side for the wet. So it's a, it's a wet, dry, wet thing if I want it to be. Right. And then the channel switching allows me the way, I didn't even understand this when Bradshaw first gave, got it for me. I didn't get his brilliance, but there's a center channel then there's a switch that gives you dry in, so it'll put, takes the dry signal and puts it in both wet sides as well. And that's for using the Univibe sounds, because Univibe has to be mono to right. work. It can't be center. 
right. and two outsides that are univibe. That sounds funny. Yeah, because it won't, yeah. And, and phasers are kind of the same way. So you can switch in the direct signal into both of these, and then the center channel you can turn on and off. And then you can turn on and off the wet channels too. So I'll send three channels sometimes to people so that they can actually reamp the center channel if they want to. If they go, you know what, uh, this sound is not sitting in the mix, let's reamp it through a box or something, they'll have the performance dry in the center and yeah. then the wet stuff on the side. And in, and in film music and, and production music, you, I tend not to print verb. I tend not, unless it's part of an effect, then I'll print verb. Because people will get really upset with you when you when you print effects yeah. and don't give them a, a, a you got to give them an, a dry yeah you got to give them a dry unaffected performance right even if it's crunchy that's okay it just needs to be a dry unaffected performance so this guy gets a lot of use the concert gets a lot of use the nailer gets a lot of use um, I also use the Kemper and the Axe Effects that goes into the Axe Effects loop uh, I use the Kemper for the amps and the effect Axe Effects for the effects the reason I like those for film is it's all recallable instantly right you save your preset if someone cuts 20 feet out of a film uh, they're meaning they cut the film 20 feet that's about i don't know four or five seconds something like that you have to be able to recall that sound exactly for movies you can't i mean the way we used to do it um i remember uh, telling this to uh, vince gill i got to meet him one time and he was so cool and we were talking about studio dates and i said yeah i used to have this book i kept like an old school book and I would take a Polaroid of all my gear, the, all the knob settings for every song and the gear settings and put it in this book. And he goes, I had one too. <laughs> <laughs> so you can yeah. remember. So you could remember when, yeah. if they called you back and they go, hey, we got to, you know, we changed the arrangement or we yes. changed the key. Yes. We got to redo, we got to recarve your part. You could go look in your book and go, oh, I used uh, whatever set here and this amp and that setting and with this mic in front of it. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was, very common, uh, yeah. And Everybody. sessions I was involved with, it, yeah, it was we, you know, having to take notes on on uh, on the settings on everything because, yes, invariably you would yeah. have to replace something, and especially with equipment that has knobs on knobs. it that are yeah. finicky knobs. It's like, and you can even get it close, and it and still might not sound still exactly might not right. sound the same, yeah. or yeah. or it may be the humidity that day was different. Yeah, you know, some of the old stuff, old Univibes, you yeah. never know how they're going to sound. Yeah. You never buzz. know, or buzz, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So it's nice to have the options of you know this stuff, and the digital modeling stuff that um, you know is going to sound. You know, it's going to sound the same. And I think that's again a consistency thing. What I actually really use all the time uh, for movie dates and stuff is probably that, yeah. probably the Kemper and the Fractal stuff. A lot of times I'll start there. The only time it doesn't particularly sit well in a mix is if everything is very, very. Um, acoustic. These things still f breathe better with a full or with a real orchestra. If I'm doubling something with a real orchestra, or I'm sitting in the mix of a real orchestra, real amps always kind of tend to sound better. But if I'm in an, a synthesizer envi environment where it's a lot of soundscape, those actually sound better because yeah. they don't take up as much space. Yeah, yeah. You've played all these different roles, or you know, copyist, orchestrator, all these different things. Uh, you know, guitarist, you play all these you know, different instruments. How do you see yourself? Well, I, th I think I see myself primarily as a studio musician. Um, not necessarily as a guitar player, but as a musician that happens to play guitar and conduct and orchestrate and compose. 
and I do it primarily in the studio as my medium, as my canvas, as so, so to speak. Um, th that's kind of the, the mindset that allows me to focus in on what I'm doing. Because I think a lack of focus, if you try and do everything, you're never going to please everybody. And for me, I enjoy being in the studio so much. I love the environment. I love the people. Uh, I like being in a, room, in a room with 70 people making music or five people making music, whatever it is. But I think that I look at myself as a studio musician primarily, as, as what I do. And I think that when you find that thing that you do, whatever it is, uh, Pat Metheny told me, or well, did tell me, I read this. And I, I did get to sit with Pat for a little while at a, at a jazz camp one time. And I can, I think he may have even said this to everybody. And I know he said it in his book, so I'll quote him anyway. He said uh, he had learned that having a style, a personal style, first step to that is being yourself on purpose in whatever it is. Like, I, I mean, I play this guitar on purpose because this is part of my style. I made a conscious decision to be a studio musician. I wanted that to be my medium, my place to, to express myself. And I remember my dad also saying a couple of things that can help with that mindset. Again, the open and curious mindset. Not only do you need to be yourself on purpose, which will help people understand you clearer and get you more work, the best time to look for work is when you have work. Absolutely. You know, how many times have we all been out hat in hand, there's nothing on the books, and you're knocking on the door, hey man, I'm really good. Yeah. That's a much different mindset than, I've got a session this afternoon at three. When you walk into the room with that confidence and you know you're looking for work, but you've already got work, it's a different mindset. Uh, wow. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so, yeah. so that's the studio thing for me. That's kind of looking at, at it that way. You kind of, for me, it was always an, a goal, too. It was a huge goal for me to be in the studios because that's where all my heroes were. Yeah. They were all studio guys that went on to do other stuff. So to be able to have gone through and, and know those guys is a great honor and a great privilege for me. Yeah. Now, what happens when you time out? Yeah, when you time out. What, yeah, so what happens when, when yeah. you know, because we all, you know, any, anyone that's, that's working, you have different, uh, different eras, different pages, different chapters of, yeah. of your work life. Yeah. And, and sometimes things, you know, close, uh, w the world changes. Yeah. yeah. You can't fight style. You can present yourself in your best light, but if that's not the style of the day, it may not be the most open time for you. So I the first time I went to Tommy's house for a lesson, Tommy Tedesco's house, I opened the door and he said to me, well, are you going to be one of these guys that just comes and gives himself five years to make it? I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm in the business forever. And he goes, great, then I'll teach you. And that's really the, the, the key to it. At the end of the day, when we're talking about how do you find work, what do you find work, how do you present yourself? At the end of the day, the reality is, is the guy that stays the longest mostly wins. You know, there's perseverance involved in all of this. Absolutely. And there's, um, there's, there's perseverance where, where I, I was trying to get a lesson with Paul Jackson Jr. one time. And Paul's the nicest cat in the world. And I'd called him and he didn't pick up the phone or it was a machine and then... I'd called him back, left another one. I thought, well, that's enough. I don't want to bug him too much. But he did call me back. He goes, look, man, I'm on tour with somebody or I'm doing this thing. Call me in two weeks. So I called him back in two weeks. Um, I put it in my book, called Paul back in two weeks, called him back. 
He says, oh man, yeah, I just picked up two sessions. Call me Thursday. I think Thursday's open. So I kept calling him and when he said, and in an appropriate way, I didn't bug him, but I did follow through. And eventually I got a couple lessons with Paul. It was awesome. And he signed my record of his, that's uh, I came to play. He signed it to one of the most persistent musicians I've ever met. Yeah. So there's a persistence to this that I don't look at selling music. I don't sell music. I give it away. I sell everything else. They don't pay me for music. They pay me for everything else. They pay me for me to get out of bed in the morning. They pay me to get to the session. They pay me for the knowledge base I bring to the thing, but I give the music away. And I think that's a part of the mindset thing we've been talking about is kind of an overriding theme is that my mindset is I want to be open and curious and give music away, but I want to be paid for everything else. Because <laughs> everything else is where your value is too. You know, you got, just because you press a couple of buttons and you hit print doesn't make you an orchestrator or a conductor or whatever you're going to do. It's just a button click. Yeah, and that's how people see it sometimes. But it's the knowledge base to know which buttons to click, which notes to play, which guitar to grab. Yeah, it's just a guitar and there's six strings on it. But which one and how do you play it? That's what's important. It makes you valuable. Yeah. Well, Carl, thank you so much for... Uh Letting, letting us in, into your studio and, and giving us a, a, a peek into, into your world and also passing on some really important uh, ad, advice and tools for people hopefully to uh, grab onto and, and, and use to, uh, to help themselves. Oh, happy to do it, man. I think that's, we got to pass on the information. The guys that passed on information to me, every single one of them that I asked, what can I do? Well, how can I repay you? Every single one of them said nothing more than tell someone else help somebody else, maybe with a little bit of knowledge or a gig or, you know, some sort of a thing, just pass that knowledge on. And that's, that's what's important. So when you learn what you learn, pass it on to someone else. Thank you for passing it on. Absolutely. Absolutely.